Well, with that said, if you have God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. We continue on in our study in the book of Hebrews, specifically chapter 5. And we'll be focusing on verses 5 through 10, but for the sake of context, we'll begin our time together reading from verse 1. So Hebrews 5, verse 1. Hebrews 5, verse 1. Hear now the reading of God's most holy and precious word. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, He is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. Verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Amen. Bow with me in a word of prayer. O Lord, we take great comfort in knowing that we look to and worship a God who is not silent, but one who speaks to us to your people through his word. As we now turn our attentions to the preaching and receiving of Holy Scripture, we ask that by the Spirit, you would unfold to us that very word and give us light. Impart to us understanding, knowing just how simple-minded we often are. And grant to us wisdom that can only be found in the vast treasures that is found in your word. Help us to see and recognize the very work of redemption accomplished by our dear Savior, Jesus Christ. But much more than that, help us to trust in that accomplished work. To look to Him in faith and obey all that You call us to do and all that You require of us to be in Him. And that for Your glory. We ask these things in the name of your beloved Son, who is our High Priest. Amen. Amen. Last week, in studying verses 1 through 4, we examined four qualifications required of a High Priest. And the reason for why the writer of Hebrews begins chapter 5 in this way, if you can recall, was to establish and to build up for his readers an Old Testament backdrop the necessary context and categories needed to correctly explain and to understand who Jesus is and what he has done. 
He does this within the bounds of the whole theme of Hebrews, the supremacy of Christ, to emphasize that Jesus, the Son of God, is the true and better Aaronic high priest. But much more than that, that Christ, that He's the true and better, the perfect and sufficient Savior. Now to quickly review the four points, first, the high priest was required to be a human He's to be, verse 1, taken from among men. The high priest, the one who was to represent a certain people, was to have solidarity, to have the same nature with those he was called to represent. The reason being that it's man who stands condemned before God for sin. And so it's man alone who must and is required to pay for what is rightfully owing to God for sins. Second, the high priest was appointed. Stated in another way, high priests were never self-appointed, but rather this was an office that was appointed by God. It was never applied for. It was never earned nor voted upon. But again, it was strictly, divinely, and sovereignly appointed and regulated by God alone. Third, the high priest was to be compassionate. He was to, verse 2, have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray. These were men who were required to deal gently with sinful people. The work of their hands were to be matched by their hearts, their internal and inward feelings kept in line with their outward duties. And this idea, though on the facade, seems very simple was actually quite profound in that the high priest was really to be someone who put upon himself and wore the weaknesses of the people he represented. Meaning, the high priest's compassion was to, it was to exude and manifest itself by putting upon himself, by clothing himself with the weaknesses of the people who God ordained him to serve. And lastly, The high priest was to be humble. This was a man who was not to take, verse 4, was not to take honor to himself, but he was to give honor to God, to give glory to God. Said in another way, the high priest was never to be one who was a self-promoter. And the very idea that the high priest was appointed and chosen by God meant by necessity that he had absolutely no right No claim, no ground to take glory or honor to himself. Now, after establishing these qualifications, the writer of Hebrews, in following verses verses 5 through 10, he begins to shift the focus from the lesser Aaronic priesthood to the greater priesthood found in Christ. He turns from the universal principles related to that old covenant high priesthood and he shifts on over to the more specific manifestations that we see in the priesthood in Christ. Now quickly taking a step back, if we were to examine verses 1 through 10 as a whole, in light of the overarching theme of the high priesthood of Christ, we would quickly come to discover that the main idea of this passage where everything culminates together into one single point is found in verse 9. If you look down with me, it's found in verse 9 where we read, 
that he, Jesus, became the author of eternal salvation. In other words, everything in this section is designed to show and to highlight how Jesus became and why he's qualified to be the Savior. The writer of Hebrews, in directing this epistle to first century Christian Jews, as many of you know well by now, being persecuted for their faith, in seeking to encourage them, he not only demonstrates that Jesus fulfills all the qualifications of a high priest, he not only demonstrates that, that Jesus is superior, that he's uh, superior over all other priests, but as we'll see tonight, he demonstrates how and why Jesus is the author, the very source and foundation of our eternal salvation. And this is what we'll be focusing in on today and unpacking. As we begin, here's the question that I'd like to propose to you and answer tonight. And here's the question. How did Jesus become the author of our eternal salvation? Or if we can borrow the language from last week's study, what qualifies Jesus to be the source of our eternal salvation? Let me say that one more time. What qualifies Jesus to be the source of our eternal salvation? And there's two points, two terms that I want to answer this question with, which will also serve as our outline for today, and here they are. First, his office, verses 5 and 6. And second, his obedience, verses 7 through 9. So again, the first term is his office, And second, his obedience. Verse 5, looking at our first point. The writer, in shifting the focus from the generic to the specific, from the lesser to the greater, what we find here in verses 5 and 6 is his demonstration on how Jesus is categorically different from any other priest. That the very nature of his office as high priest is one that is completely unique and set apart. And he does this in two specific ways. First, by highlighting the dignity of Jesus' priesthood. And second, by emphasizing the duration of his priesthood. Now, if you look down at verse 5, we read, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now when I initially read verse 5, and perhaps some of you felt it too, there was something that felt a little off. In taking a closer look at verse 5, you might have thought to yourselves as you read this, you might have thought it read, Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my high priest. But he doesn't say that. Rather, we read, Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my, what? Son. So why the shift here? I thought we were talking about high priests here. Why jump from high priests to son? The reason why the writer does this, in quoting Psalm 2-7, is because he's setting the stage to make the argument that Jesus is not only qualified, he's not a qualified high priest, 
But his office is one that is categorically and quantitatively different. That unlike any other priesthood, his office is one where there exists this, this majestic union of both royal and the priestly. He's not only appointed as the high priest of God, but he's also the dignified. He's the distinguished son of God. In other words, in quoting Psalm 2, what the writer is doing here is he's presenting Jesus to be a royal high priest, a kingly high priest, a dignified representative. And this is further demonstrated in verse 6. In quoting Psalm 110, we read, And he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now I can only imagine some of you out there thinking now, who in the world is Melchizedek? What a strange name. What does Melchizedek, what does he have anything to do with what we're talking about here? Now, the writer of Hebrews, he gives an extensive treatment of Melchizedek in chapter 7, so I'm going to save the details for when we get there. But let me quickly give you a sample of who Melchizedek is and why he's so significant here in our passage. And this is amazing. Melchizedek, prior to the book of Hebrews, he's only mentioned two times in the Bible prior to Hebrews. The first time he's mentioned is found in Genesis 14, 18. And you don't have to turn there, but let me just read it to you. We read in Genesis 14, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram. Abram after, or Abraham if you want to refer to him as, Abram after coming back from a military conquest and defeating kings near Sodom, seemingly out of nowhere, Melchizedek enters into this picture. And within this scene, we read that he blesses Abram, to which then he responds to him with tithes and offerings. And the text simply describes Melchizedek as the king of Salem, the priest of the God Most High. And just as he suddenly entered into the scene, he disappears just like that. That's all we get. That's all we find. And for the next hundreds upon hundreds of years, we get nothing from him. No reference, no mention, nothing until David makes one last mention of him in Psalm 110.4, where David, as God's mouthpiece, writes that the Messiah will be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, to which again we find no mention of until we finally come here to our passage here in the book of Hebrews. So why? What's God trying to teach us here? Why bring up and make reference to this obscure and seemingly insignificant name? Why bring Melchizedek back into the storyline of Scripture? What's so special about him? And that the writer of Hebrews felt the need to bring, bring him back, and of all things, to use him to demonstrate the superiority of Jesus as the high priest. And here's the reason. Melchizedek, who was 
the king of Salem, the ancient name for Jerusalem, was simultaneously also the priest of God. In other words, Melchizedek symbolically serves as a pointer toward a priesthood that is entirely unique. A priesthood that stands outside of the priesthood of Aaron. That stands outside the tribe of Levi and that stands outside of the law. It's one that is categorically different. It stands in a league of its own. It's one of a wholly other nature. This to say that Melchizedek, who is both king and priest, serves as a type of Christ, as a priestly king. That there exists an office of a royal priesthood, a dignified priesthood that's far greater than that of Aaron's. Which is to say that not only is Jesus a high priest, but he's far much more than that. That he's a dignified high priest. He's a kingly high priest. And as we read in Hebrews 5.5, 5, he's the high priest of God who is the son of God. But not only do we find here that the nature of his office is different, but we also find that the quality is far greater. Just as Melchizedek symbolically serves as a pointer toward a royal priesthood, he also symbolically serves as a pointer to a priesthood that has no beginning and no end. In other words, while the Aaronic priesthood served for limited amounts of time, rotating over and over again after so many years, finite and inadequate in nature, we read in verse 6 that the duration of this royal priesthood is one that expands throughout eternity. You are a priest forever. Again, we'll dig more into this in chapter 7, but what is for us here to know now is that Jesus isn't a typical high priest. His office is one that is distinctly unique. It's one of dignity, of royalty. It's an office where his work isn't one and done, but one that extends into forever. Not only is Christ Jesus the great high priest, but again, he's the dignified son of God. And his work of mediation as the great high priest holds eternal duration. What Melchizedek symbolized, Christ realized and manifested and ultimately fulfilled. Now in examining his office, according to the order of Melchizedek, all of this has tremendous implications for us as Christians when it comes especially to the assurance of our salvation. Up until this very point, much of the writer's focus has long been on discussing the matter of our perseverance, the question of why. Why we should persevere. Why Jesus is the God-man. Why Christ is superior above all. And so on and so on. But what we find here is a shift from the why to the how. I understand that Jesus is the word of God incarnate. I understand that he is the son of God. I believe that he's the true and better Moses and Joshua and Aaron. I believe all of that. I understand why. But how do I persevere? 
I understand why, but, but how do I do it? And the answer to this question, and really the answer to the question of our assurance is found within the appointment of Jesus Christ as our royal high priest. And it's here where we find the gospel. It's that he has already completed the work of dying for our sins. He has gone into heaven to offer up himself his own sacrificial blood for our sakes. And he now sits enthroned as king and priest, ever so ministering on our behalf, praying for our good, interceding with the Father, sending down to us heavenly men and needed to feed and tend our faith. Beloved, it's for us to see that it's within the dignity and the duration of Christ's office as the royal high priest where we find our assurance. Dr. James Boyce perfectly sums it up in this way. He writes, The reason the saints will persevere is that Jesus has done everything necessary for their salvation. Since he has made a perfect atonement for their sins and since God has sworn to accept Jesus' work, the believer can be as certain that he or she will be in heaven as, as that Jesus himself will be there, interceding on their behalf as both king and priest. Brothers and sisters, because Jesus Christ is the Son of God, because he's our dignified high priest, it's in him that we find eternal duration and eternal security in salvation, do we not? And it's because of his office as the royal high priest that then qualifies him to be the author of eternal salvation. Moving on from his office to our second point, his obedience. Look down with me now to verse 7. We read, Who in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now what we find here in verses 7 through 8 is what scholars often refer to as the contra-expectation. It's a big word. Contra-expectation. Up to this point, the writer time and time again emphasizes the superiority of Christ in part on the basis of his unique relationship to the Father. But despite this relationship, what we find here is something unexpected. Again, hence contra-expectation. Unlike the custom of kings back in antiquity who took positions bestowed upon them simply by the means of lineage, Jesus, on the other hand, was called to walk a completely different path. A path not of ease and comfort as would be fitting for a prince or a king, but rather Jesus was appointed to walk a path of obedience in that through suffering. Verse 8, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now you would think that the son wouldn't have to learn obedience, especially through suffering. But the writer here is saying, oh no, not this one. Not this son. Because this son, this king, 
This one isn't someone who just sits around. This royal figure isn't someone who just wanders about in the safety of his own comforts. No, this king, he's different. He's unique. There's something categorically different about this one. This king isn't, he just isn't dignified, but you see, he's also the priest. There's something different. He's a high priest in the truest sense. As he condescended and lived amongst humanity in the midst of sinners, he's the royal high priest who demonstrated divine compassion on those who his heavenly father appointed him to represent. Gentleness as he stooped low in humanity, clothing himself with the weaknesses of those who he was sent to save, as we see here in verse 7, in the days of his flesh. Contrary to the world's standards and the expectations of what a king was to be and what a king was to look like, we see here in our passage that our king, he came to suffer. He came to die. Notice in verse 7 that the writer doesn't say that Jesus came in the days of his flesh to pray but rather that he offered up prayers and supplications. Meaning there was a specific, or rather there were specific prayers with specific focal points here. These were prayers and supplications that belonged to a particular occasion rather rather than to a general practice of Christ. And I would suggest to you that this picture here is nothing less than our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was here in this garden where Jesus faced that horrible hour of which he came into this world to take upon himself. And it was here where, Mark 14, where his soul was exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. And it was in this garden where Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, crying out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And friends, Jesus wasn't simply praying to be delivered from death here. But he was praying for something far, much more, far beyond that. We read at the end of verse 7 that his prayers were heard. And the question that often presents itself here in light of what took place in Gethsemane is how is it that Jesus' prayers were heard? How is it that Jesus' prayer of having this cup taken away from him answered? Because I don't see it answered. I don't think it was answered. I don't think the cup was taken away from him. Now some scholars have tried to make sense of this by writing that Jesus' prayers were answered when God supplied him with the necessary strength and power to accept the divine will of the cross. Others say that God answered Jesus' prayers by removing his fears from making his way to the cross. Though these answers are both right to a certain extent, I believe that they're only right in part. This to say that Jesus' prayers and supplications of removing the cup of wrath away from him 
was indeed fully answered and it was indeed fully satisfied. But it was not satisfied, it was not answered by his exemption from the cross, but by him dying on that cross. In other words, Jesus' prayer was answered not in the garden of Gethsemane, but it was answered as his body lay within the tomb. God answered that prayer. He removed that horrible cup of wrath, not by omission, not by discarding that cup, but by his son, who is our king priest, by him taking upon himself and drinking to the very dregs that bitter cup of wrath. It was through this verse, or through this event, verse 8, that we read that although he was a son, He learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He suffered. Beloved, what a profound thing it is to think about that the Son of God who would become the Son of Man, that he would stoop low in humility by wrapping himself in in humanity, in human flesh, to live amongst men and to live in the midst of sinners so that he, as the qualified royal high priest of God, that he would come, not to rule, but that he would come to suffer and die for our sakes. So that he would learn obedience through suffering to save us. Friends, this this text, reading this, should utterly humble you. Now, what does it mean that Jesus had to learn obedience? And what does it mean, verse 9, that Jesus was perfected? Because there are, I'm sure, some of you out there thinking, well, I thought Jesus was God. I thought the whole point of this book for why we're to even look to Jesus and to trust in Jesus was because he is obedient, because he is perfect. If, if Jesus had to learn obedience and if he had to be perfected, doesn't that mean that he's not God? Doesn't the very Godness of Jesus necessitate his total obedience and total perfection? So what does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus learned obedience and that he was perfected? I believe that the best way to go about making sense of this text is by first understanding what it's not saying. The writer here is not saying in any way, shape, or form that the son had been at one point in his life disobedient or flawed. He's not saying that Jesus had to unlearn disobedience to be obedient, nor is he saying that Jesus had to progress from imperfection to perfection. But what the writer is communicating is that Jesus' call required him to walk obediently all the way to the end of a path to which his father had appointed him. Where the first Adam failed in his test in disobedience, Christ succeeded in his perfect obedience. So then again, what does it mean that Jesus learned obedience? It means that Jesus moved from untested obedience into suffering 
And that through that suffering, through the crushing of crushing anguish of Gethsemane, through the horrors of Calvary, he moved into tested and proven obedience. In other words, Jesus, to have learned obedience and having been perfected, it wasn't a matter of deficiency, but duty. Commentator George Guthrie, he helpfully writes, he writes, by making it all the way to the end of his passion, Jesus was made perfect or complete in the sense of being able to fulfill his role as our high priest. He finished the course. He drank the full measure of the experience that was needed in order to come before the throne with a sacrifice with which our sins would be addressed. And he continues on, he writes, Jesus, having learned obedience, means that the Son arrived at a new stage of experience, having passed through the school of suffering. Perfection refers to the Son's having graduated from that school, accomplishing the mission and making it to the end of that path of passion. Jesus' learned obedience and Him having been perfected in this context means that he was brought to his ultimate goal. It means that the preparation and equipping for that office and work that he came into this world to do was perfectly accomplished. His saving purpose, it was exhaustively fulfilled. And so the son, in his office as the king high priest, and in his obedience learned to its utter perfection through suffering, It's through these two terms that then qualifies him to be, verse 9, the author of eternal salvation. It's through his office as the kingly high priest. It's through his perfect obedience, through suffering, that qualifies him, the Son of God, to be the author, the grounds, the reason, the cause, the basis, the one responsible for the source, the very source of, of eternal salvation. And it's because of his office, and it's because of his obedience, that then qualifies Jesus to be able to say in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now notice, as we begin to wrap things up, I want you to notice Who is this eternal salvation for? Who is it for? Is it for everyone? Is it for everyone who calls themselves quote-unquote Christian? Is it for those who grew up in the church? Is it for those who go to church? Is it for those who got baptized or for those who take communion? No. Rather, we read here at the end of verse 9, that eternal salvation are for those who obey him, who obey him. Now, some of you might be surprised that the Greek word that's used here for obey, it really actually means obey. It means what it means. The word that's used here, obey, It calls for us to obey. It means what it means. This to say, brothers and sisters, obedience for the Christian is never optional. 
And if you notice, the word obey is used in the present tense. Obedience is to be then the natural and the continual response for those who are redeemed in the Son. It's not simply the act of obedience alone that saves, but much more, far more than that, it's in the source. It's in the person of whom salvation is found, namely Christ. Now, I know that there exists some of you, when you read texts like this, you almost shrink back in caution. Whenever you read passages like this, that eternal salvation are for those who obey him, some of your minds by default go to, why not just say, especially for our own convenience, why not just write, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who believe in him in faith, or rather, who believe in him or have faith in him. Why did he write obey instead of believe or faith? Because after all, in our reformed categories of thinking, after all, isn't it all about sola fide? Isn't it about justification? We're saved by faith. We're justified by faith alone. So again, why does the writer choose to write that eternal salvation is for those who obey and not for those who believe? The writer of Hebrews actually answers this for us in Hebrews chapter 3. In his example of Israel, it's within chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, where the writer equates disobedience to unbelief, if you remember that passage. It was Israel's unbelief which manifested itself in their disobedience against God that barred them from ever entering into that promised land of God's rest. So in this example, there exists this very real sense of unbelief and disobedience that these two things are dynamically equivalent to one another. And if unbelief and disobedience are equivalent, then the flip side must also be true, that faith and obedience are dynamically related to one to the other. Rather, it would be right for us to say that they're inextricably bound together. In other words, to believe is to obey. It's what Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.5, the obedience of faith. Meaning to be found in the author of salvation. It's not a matter of figuring out how to live our lives in some sort of regimented way of living, some sort of principled obedience. But we see here in verse 9 that we're to live a life of principled obedience that finds root in trusting in the Lord with all of our hearts. And as we trust in the Lord, as we trust in Him and believe in Him and have faith in Him, there will be this natural manifestation of flowing out of unwavering obedience. Said in another way, we worship God, not to know God, but we Know God and that drives us and compels us to worship God. The Christian faith is not true because it works, but it works because it's true. The main point of all this can be summarized in one sentence. It's that our hope of salvation is not in our obedience but his obedience. And let me say that one more time, beloved. 
Our hope of salvation is not in our obedience, but His obedience. And if there's any application to walk away with tonight, I beg of you, don't leave here thinking that you ought to obey or do more to be saved. Don't think that you have to save yourself. But look to Him who is our perfectly obedient King Priest. Look to Him who made way for salvation for sinners by becoming the very source of eternal life. Unbelievers, if you are here with us tonight, I must warn you, I must warn you, and I plead with you that this door, this hope of salvation in Christ Jesus is still open for you today as long as it is still called today. It's for you to know that this hope of salvation will never be attained by your works, never by your best efforts, nor by anything that you can offer up, nor sacrifice. But it is to Jesus Christ alone, His office, His obedience, that you must look to. It's to Christ who is the royal high priest, and it's to Him who made way for you through perfect obedience, through suffering. That he has attained the right to be the author and source of eternal salvation. And I promise you, unbeliever, this day that he can provide that for you. That he can provide that for you and give that to you. It is he that makes this promise. So I plead with you, friends do not delay. Do not delay. It's to this Christ you must come. It's to this Christ you must look to. It's to this Christ you must trust in faith and in faith, in belief, obey. It's to Him you must follow. Beloved, in all that Christ endured, after everything that we pondered about today, all that He went through, all that He suffered as the King priest, as the King What a precious Savior we have in Jesus, do we not? May we forever sing, as we often do sing here at this church, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. May these words be the anthem of our very lives. Bow with me in a word of prayer. O Lord, we come confessing that our minds are often ignorant, our thoughts vagrant, our affections far too earthly, and our hearts unbelieving. And it's only by the Holy Spirit where we find help. As we proceed from this place, help us, O Lord, help us, we pray, to never look to ourselves, but to keep our eyes and the affections of our hearts fixed upon the one who is the author who is the source of eternal salvation. For it's to Him that we look, it's to Him that we long for, and it's to Him that we live for. In all that we do, whether we eat or drink, may You receive all the glory. We pray all these things in the One who is both our King and our Great High Priest, the obedient and perfect Son of God, Christ Jesus. Amen.